You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. argument as to the identity of the poster child for the era of free money. Both the company and its larger-than-life CEO have ridden a wave of cheap funding to an astronomical valuation while consistently failing to meet a series of aggressive targets. None of that has mattered until now, but with quantitative easing turning to quantitative tightening, there are signs emerging that old-fashioned metrics such as a company's profitability, the strength of its balance sheet and its credit rating may once again be things that investors use to value its business. In such a world, things may look very different for a company which has been one of the market leaders for the past several years. This week, on Adventures in Finance, the return of Tesla. Today is the 12th of April 2018 and welcome everybody to episode 62 of Adventures in Finance. Uh, in New York City, in the middle of our technological meltdown is James. James, come in, are you still there? Oh man, I'm still here, thank goodness. Have you uh, have you broken any equipment yet? Uh, a computer was about to go out the window, we'll say that much. Yes, so uh, listeners, for any technological uh, problems we have this week, we've had a complete disaster so we're battling through that uh james myself and of course alex alex are you there still i am hi good man um this week the subject at hand is an old favorite of ours and that is tesla and this week we bring back mark spiegel who laid out the bear case for tesla last year um obviously plenty's happened so we wanted to get an update from mark on that and also joining us is charlie grant of the wall street journal um charlie's a journalist who covers this stock relentlessly in the journal uh, brilliantly i i think um what you are not going to hear i suspect is a flat out bull case but once again as we did last year i'm very happy to open the microphone once uh, any tesla bulls out there hear this story this week and have a valid bull case to put up against it we would love to have you come and join us on the show so listen to what we have to say for the rest of the podcast and then please do send us an email and we will pick someone who can credibly come on and dismantle the bears piece by piece. But before we get to that, we have other stuff to get to, first of which is our long short segment. And as always, Alex, I'm going to be the gentleman, and I'm going to let you go first. What have you got for us this week? Well, I am long scheming seniors. Scheming seniors, okay. The uh, Wall Street Journal reporting that uh, the Department of Justice sent letters to colleges, including Wesleyan, Middlebury, and Pomona, uh, to inform them of a potential investigation into potential antitrust violations and asking these colleges to keep messages that regard arrangements about swapping names of admitted students. So people think it has something to do with the early admissions process where if I apply to Middlebury and I get in, I, I promise I won't apply to any other schools. Might be their way of, of letting the other colleges know, hey, you know, we already we already took James. Uh, don't let him get into your school. And so it, it, it's kind of an interesting investigation they're looking into it doesn't seem like a, a critical issue for the department of justice perhaps in my opinion but uh it, it's good news for those seniors who want to get into one place and then just apply to the rest of the world just because they can 
Ah, you see, I'm th- I'm waiting for the link to scheming senior citizens. I oh. thought there was there was the grandma and grandpa were getting involved in this somehow, and uh, it's not just you, Grant. Yeah, all right, James. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, yeah, you would think you would think the DOJ would have better things to um, to spend their time looking into. Um, you know, a couple yeah. of things obviously spring to mind, but we really do not want to open that little can of worms today. Um, instead, I am going to offer you my short first. I am short the circus. Uh, not the circus, uh, Cirque du Soleil circus. I'm short the political circus. Having sat and watched the Facebook hearings this week, um, watching Mark Zuckerberg testifying before the House Committee on Energy and Commerce today, uh, after testifying before the Senate Judiciary and Commerce Committees yesterday, um, you know, the, the, the data was out there all week about how many of the people who were going to be questioning him uh, had received campaign contributions from Facebook. And it's truly extraordinary. Since 2014, Facebook has contributed just over $640,000 to the members of Congress that were asking him questions this week. And you know, that's not to say there was any obvious soft peddling, although a couple of the senators were... Um, See, remarkably reverent towards uh, Zuckerberg, in my opinion. But this whole this whole nexus between campaign donations and highly public, highly successful businessmen is just a farce, frankly. So the the very fact that uh, this comes up and so many of the congressmen were kind of indebted to Zuckerberg for campaign contributions just makes a mockery of the whole process, in my in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I com- could not agree more. It's it's not just Zuckerberg. It's it's a- any company uh, that bundles all this money and, and gives all this money to um, to non campaign uh, groups that help a, a certain candidate. Uh, I mean, if if you're if, if it's going to help you keep your job to be soft on these people, it, it's it's not to call these people malicious or corrupt. But e- even if you don't know, it's influencing you. I mean, it, you, if you know this person and is responsible for you being there, how could you not? How could that not impact your policy making? Well, exactly right. And, and more importantly, what message does it send to people who are thinking of contributing to you in, in the future? You know, if they see you up there tearing down a guy who's a big campaign contributor, right. then that's going to make other people think twice about donating. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just tired of this whole thing. The money in politics, not just in the US, but in the UK, everywhere, uh, is just really getting to be a bit too much. So that's my short this weekend. I'm, I, I, I stay short of it very confidently. Yeah. Uh, personally, I am short Elizabeth Holmes's second personal assistant. <laughs> okay. So uh, th- this is another Wall Street Journal scoop, by the way, so, so good on them. But uh, they're reporting that uh, Theranos is laying off most of their workforce, about 100 people, to get down to somewhere around 25 or, or even fewer. It's an attempt to, to keep this company from bankruptcy. Of course, Theranos, founded by Elizabeth Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes uh, just settled a, a civil, uh, f- just settled a fraud case, uh, had to pay half a million dollars um, and what a lot of people thought was a pretty lenient settlement. Anyway, the, the article goes on to explain that through Tuesday, she had two personal assistants and two security guards. So layoff is, is probably bad news for at least one of these assistants, although you sort of had to had to see it coming if you're assistant number two for someone who just settled with uh, the authorities. Well, I, I mean, you, you may find she'll get rid of both assistants and hire an extra security guard. I think that might <laughs> actually not be a bad, not be a bad idea. Because that way you're actually reducing the number of staff and probably putting more resources where I suspect you're going to need them. Well, well, they're also selling a large stake of the company at a favorable price. So I'm not sure exactly what a favorable price is, but uh, but that's what they're selling it at. Well, I mean, look, they, they, the contention was that every price was favorable right up until the scandal broke right. and the thing uh, got pummeled. So who knows? But that Theranos story, man, it's uh, whichever way you slice it, it's, there's going to be plenty of books written about this thing after the fact. That's for certain. Well, my long this week um, comes with a bit of an edge. Uh, I mm. am long Twitter, but I am being a bit cute with this. I'm one of those crafty seniors, except this time it is senior citizens, I think. I'm long Twitter because I find it an incredibly valuable uh, tool in terms of getting financial thinking out of a bunch of really smart people. But lately, I'm I'm really kind of getting a bit fed up with the dogma and how firmly people hold their beliefs you know most people on twitter for the most part are making guesses about the future and there's a lot of really smart people out there talking about what they think might be going on what they think the outcome might be 
But more and more recently, I've found myself getting tagged in these conversations between people who are absolutely certain of the future, and more importantly, absolutely certain that anyone that doesn't share their vision of the future is an idiot. And I'm really, really getting tired of it. You you try and foster like a civilised debate um, and talk to people about how, you know, well, this guy's a smart guy, so I'm happy to listen to what he has to say, and look, he may be wrong, but it gives me someone to think about. And time and time and time again, some of these guys on Twitter are like, well, no, he's an idiot because he he thinks differently to I do. And I just, I'm just getting so upset with the whole thing. I just think, you know, I don't want to throw the whole, why can't we all just get along? But whatever happened to civilized disagreement? Where did that Mm. go? Any ideas? Yeah, it's amazing because you didn't get the chance to spend as much uh, of your brain space with people who agreed with you in the pre-internet era. I'm not the first person to observe this, but uh, it, it creates these these packs of people who, if you start to see some merit on the other side, all, all of a sudden you, you find yourself out the outside the pack. It, it's almost like a bunch of people who, who love the Grateful Dead and, and they travel to Grateful Dead shows together. If one of the people starts saying, you know, I, I don't know about this band so much, it, it's, it threatens their whole social life. Yeah, it's, but it's bizarre because you know, th- th- these are smart people. And I, mm. and I just, I'm baffled at, at how people can hold their views so firmly and, and, and just completely ignore the views of other people who are demonstrably very smart and well-read and understand the subject at hand. It's just remarkable to me. And I'm, I'm, Twitter, I'm getting really fed up with it. So can we all just kind of dial it back a bit and use Twitter to get sensible discourse going and, and share information and all those good things? My God, I'm such a social justice warrior. This is a nightmare. We better move on before I do something ridiculous and knit myself a shirt or something. Um, okay, so the, let's get on to the subject at hand this week, which is our old friend Tesla. And joining us, uh, as I said earlier on, we have um, Mark Spiegel. But before we welcome Mark back to Avengers and Finance, it's time to welcome Charlie Grant of the Wall Street Journal. Charlie, are you there? Welcome to Avengers and Finance. Oh, thanks for having me. So the, the subject at hand is one that I know you are all over, and that is uh, Tesla, the company, Elon Musk, the man, uh, the whole the whole kit and caboodle. Um, you know, we're recording this as late as possible before we air because uh, you just don't know these days what's going to come out and what's going to happen. So, <laughs> I mean, look, I, I guess that the, the best place to start with all this is the production numbers because that seemed to be the thing that saved them from um, the edge of the precipice last week. So, so give us your take on those production numbers if you if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, you know, Tesla exited uh, the first quarter producing about two thousand Model Threes, which was certainly better than some you know forecasters had worried about on Wall Street. Um, and the stock had a nice little rally off that, given that Wall Street is an expectations game. Um, that number, though, that victory, as it were, for Tesla and the share price should be taken with a pretty big grain of salt. Because, first of all, the company guided to 2,500 vehicles a week at the end of Q1, uh, you know, three months ago. And they missed that target by a wide margin. That's the third quarter in a row where they've missed their guidance. They are sticking to the 5,000 car a week number by the end of uh, Q2 or thereabouts. They seem to soften the language a little bit in the latest uh, delivery report on, you know, it's around the next few months instead of by the end of Q2. But, you know, even that 2,000 number um, at, at the end of Q1, it was reported that Tesla was pulling cars off, you're pulling workers off the Model S and X lines, um, their existing, you know, luxury high margin products to make this Model 3 launch go. So you have to wonder about and the sustainability of, you know, that uh, surge in production, if you will. And Tesla, I would say, has not answered the question about whether they can mass produce a mass market car uh, in a profitable uh on time manner that you know you might expect from the major automakers they're trying to unseat. Now, now you know, this is this is this podcast is the second time we've we've tackled the Tesla phenomenon, um, and and it really does fascinate me this whole thing. But but I'm interested because last time we did this, we we first spoke to Mark Spiegel, who's going to be joining us shortly. He's a money manager with skin in the game, um, 
And we then spoke to uh, a Tesla fan who was happy to offer us the bull case, which, you know, again, I, I have problems with it, but it, it's good to hear what, what, what people are saying. But you're a journalist, and so you come at this just as someone looking for the facts. And so I'm, I'm really interested to, to get what you make of this as someone who, who comes into it as an impartial observer but can't help but get caught up in all this. When you look at this... As a journalist, what what really stands out to you? Sure. Um, well, you know, first I should um, qualify that a little bit. You know, what we do at Heard on the Street here at the Journal is, you know, analysis and commentary. So, sure. so I mean, I am, you know, look, just looking for the facts, but it is my job to have a point of view, um, though I do not have skin in the game the way Mark or someone who owns the stock does. We don't right. touch it. Um, but... You know, what, what's fascinating to me is, and I started covering this company in 2015, but, you know, everyone, you know, knows the Tesla story. Um, it's one of the most, you know, pu- publicized stocks, you know, bullish, bearish, whatever. Everyone loves to write about this company. Everyone loves to read about it. And the questions from 2013 or so when Tesla was a startup, you know, living hand to mouth have really you know, they're still kind of present, you know, back then the question was, can they mass produce a car to unseat, you know, become a dominant player in the global auto auto industry? That's exceedingly hard to do. And in the interim, they've built a lot of products that their fans love. Their, Their fan base is as loyal as ever. They've raised a ton of capital, but at no point in the last five years have they generated the kind of cash you need to be a sustainable business that, does not depend on the capital markets. So Tesla, you know, in some ways they've made amazing progress. You know, they have tens of thousands of employees. They produce, frankly, more cars than I ever thought they would be at this point. But, you know, the big questions still have not been answered. And they are in this very uncomfortable position where they need a high stock price to finance the actual business operations, which is really not true of most of their comp competition. And that's a scary thing, because as we know, capital markets access can come and go often without much warning. Yeah. Talk to us more about that. Um, People have obviously seen headlines about what's going on with Tesla's debt. But, you know, there's a a long, uh, long held perception, I think, among Tesla fans, Tesla bulls that, you know, they lose money every day. But so what? This company is going to take over the world. And at that point, you know, all those doubts will look really silly in the rearview mirror, um, it. My perception is you think that's that's less true now than it than it has been, or, or more unlikely now than it has been, precisely because of the debt issues they're running into. Yeah, the debt, the debt. You know, the thing about debt and leverage in general when you're investing is you can't be right later. Um, you the clock is ticking. You owe these ob- fixed obligations. Um, you know, I've written a lot about the accounts payable situation um, every quarter. Tesla, you know, burns a lot of cash by the way they count it, um, which, to be clear, I don't think they're doing anything, you know, untoward with how they count free cash flow. But they are, you know, stretching their working capital, i.e. not growing accounts receivable, but growing accounts payable. And that turns into a source of cash and that can help prop your numbers up for a quarter, three quarters. You know, you pick the time frame. But sooner or later, those effects reverse. And um, sooner or later, suppliers are not going to be willing to finance you know, Tesla's purchases if they can't start generating these, uh, you know, generating the virtuous cash cycle that they've promised is coming any day now. And at some point, these production issues are not merely semantics about when customers are going to get their cars. You know, it, it actually will affect the solvency of the enterprise. So that's one reason why these production numbers are watched so carefully. And while it is somewhat short term in its outlook, I don't think it's missing the forest for the trees at all. So, so what do you think this company is going to do? I mean, let, let's be honest, they, they don't have enough money to, do their taking over the world plan? I mean, what what happens next? Um, well, you know, I think there is a market for uh, really nice luxury cars that, you know, f- 
people richer than me can uh, afford, you know, I think they could, you know, scale back the business and run. Uh, well, it might not be possible because of their debt situation, but I think, you know, keeping things small, a luxury niche player, that's a viable business model. I think Tesla's big mistake as it were, which is, you know, propelled the stock gains, but now is the source of a lot of their current trouble. Um is you know predicated on this decision to try and conquer the mass market. I, I think the company has bit off more than it can chew, and I think that over the next few years we will see uh, significantly lower equity prices. And to be fair, if we did this interview uh, in November 2016, I would have told you the exact same thing, and the stock would have doubled uh, in the next year. So I mean, you know, this, this is my best. Yes, but sooner or later, these financial issues either need to get solved or they're going to start hurting this company's fans in their wallet. And I tend to think the latter is more likely. But so just to follow up on that specifically, like, is this a very profitable car company with a massively, you know, dangerous R&D operation or like it could they scale down and be a super profitable business or or is it just, you know, this fantasy about what the future is going to bring uh, well, down the road. Well, I think scaling down once you've scaled up is really hard. Um, you know, I, you know, you do have to discharge the liabilities. Um, you, you would not have as many workers on staff. You know, it, it's very messy to unwind this sort of thing. You know, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate on what if they had, if they had made these choices that I'm talking about maybe five or 10 years ago, they never would have become a $60 billion market cap company, but there would be so much less current risk to the enterprise. Um, now it's much harder to do that. Um, I think, you know, given that they've got a $300 stock price still and all of these looming issues, I think that the wise thing to do would be raise as much cash as they possibly can today. And, you know, you might take a discount on the stock price um, to do that, but you would take, you know, I would be a lot less worried about the long-term sustainability of this business. You know, you raise, I don't know, three, $4 billion, something like that. Um, it, it's hard to do, but that's, if I were them, that's what I would be working on, you know, much, much, there, I haven't seen much urgency for that. You know, it's been a, a good 16 months since the, or a good year, excuse me, since the last equity raise, and that is the, you know, to me, the sensible way to finance uh, a business like this. And for whatever reason, we just haven't seen it. Yeah, look, I, I completely agree with that, Charlie. I, but I'm, I'm interested, though, in what you think might be the tipping point. Because when I look at the, the, the wall of problems surrounding Tesla, the two that really stick out to me as, as potentially having the, um, the wherewithal to really screw the company um, one is you know, a run on the bank of sorts where people start to pull their deposits because they're worried about you know, jokes about the company going bankrupt when you've got you know, $4 billion of, of customer deposits is perhaps not the smartest thing to do. Um, but secondly, perhaps their suppliers who, who also may start demanding stricter payment terms. Um, you know, the, the Tesla were very quick to throw Bosch under the bus with these steering bolt uh, steering column bolts when when they needed to be replacing. It was very quickly. It was not our fault. It's Bosch, and and you know those two to me are the most clear and present dangers to the company's uh, viability. Do you see anything else that we should be watching for in terms of something that could be a tipping point? I, I agree with that. I also, you know, I don't. I'm to be clear, I'm not predicting one, but I think a garden variety recession could be fatal for this company. I mean, they, you know, luxury car sales don't do well in recessions and Tesla, you know, all the focus is on the model three. And I, I don't think the focus is misplaced per se, but Tesla also needs its model S and model X sales to hold up because those do have somewhat positive unit economics. And, you know, they, you need that to, keep the financials looking somewhat presentable. And, you know, they've been losing all this money with an average selling price on their cars of, you know, six figures or close to it. And the Model 3, the early editions are far more expensive than what the company had advertised originally. But, you know, so it's, it's not as big of a dent on their finances. But, you know, we're talking $58,000, $60,000 for those. 
And when you can't make money selling a hundred thousand uh, dollar cars, you know, someone smarter than me is going to have to explain to me how you do it, making a much cheaper car where you're having problems scaling it. So you follow Tesla more closely than than almost anyone I can think of. Has have you seen sentiment shift in, in a real way um, toward the company? There have always been kind of naysayers. It's always been a quote unquote battleground stock, but. Have you seen sentiment toward the company, whether that's the stock price or even the cars themselves, begin to to turn around? And, and if so, you know when has that happened? I, I think you've seen some signs, very small signs, to be clear, on you know the fan websites and the forums. Um, you see a lot of people uh, seem to have issues with the build quality of the new Model Three. Um, this car seems to be. Uh, not getting the same kind of reviews that the Model S and X got. Uh, green car reports, uh, you know, which is obviously a fan of green cars and has, you know, praised pro- Tesla's product lineup considerably in the past. Uh, you know, had an article where they said the build quality is is you know awful, and I, I, I'm not sure if they used that exact word, but that was that was the sentiment. Um, but I think I think those cha- shifts are still pretty small in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, after this recent autopilot fatality, one of their customers uh, posted a living will on the internet and instructing his family, "If I die in an autopilot accident, do not sue Tesla because I want to be a part of this technological revolution." And so the fervor of Tesla fans is so much stronger than any. You know, consumer to, to the the true believers, the Tesla is bigger than a for profit enterprise, and you know I think that fervor is going to have to wane for the bear case to play out. So what you know what specifically triggers that I don't know, but the longer Tesla takes to generate you know a, a sustainable op. A sustainable business that stands on its own two feet, the more the 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 higher the risk they are at some sort of shock. You know, Charlie, that brings us um, to another point I wanted to ask you about, which is um, Elon himself, because this 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 uh, it's almost cult like the the belief they have in this guy. And look, <clears throat> he's a visionary, he's a big dreamer, he's accomplished some remarkable things. But it seems to me, in light of some of his recent. Um, I would definitely call them missteps, uh, but you know the tweets and and some of the things he's been saying, a couple of insensitive things right after that um, autopilot fatality. It seems to me that he is rapidly becoming actually more of a problem to the stock than um, than anything else. I mean, is is there a point where they replace him as CEO and bring in someone who can run a business? Uh, is he becoming a liability to the company? Do you think, or is this this thing so? deeply wrapped up in the cult of Elon that as, as goes Elon, so goes Tesla. Well, well, there has been uh, considerable turnover, you know, in the executive yeah. ranks of this company at levels below Elon. And I think that's what you're starting to see with some of the, you know, uh, let's say harried, uh, you know, erratic behavior we've seen in the last few weeks. I mean, we had the chief accounting officer leave, uh, you know, with basically no notice, um, the CFO left after 14 months back in 2017. The old CFO who had retired was brought back into the fold. Um, people, you know, I think Jim Chanos had this quote about uh, no one seems to be more bearish on Tesla than the senior executives. Right, right. And, you know, that's a serious problem. You need continuity to build a serious manufacturing operation. And of course, every company has some degree of turnover and not every single, you know, I'm sure many of these departures are because of individual circumstances and, you know, these, these jobs are high pressure, they're hard. But when you see this degree of turnover persisting for this long, it makes you, it makes you wonder. And for Elon's part, I mean, he's, you know, he's got a lot of interests. SpaceX, you know, I think space, you know, I don't really write about SpaceX, but I, you know, he's obviously done some pretty impressive feats with the rockets and, you know, like landing it on a barge. Sometimes Tesla Bull will say, well, can you do that to me? And I say, well, no. Okay. You, you got me. <laughs> Score one for you. I cannot land a rocket on a barge. But, you know, he wants to. But have you tried, Charlie? 
I have not. I have not. See, <laughs> if you just focused I, really hard on it, uh. journalists, you know, all talk, no action. But um, you know, th- then he's got these other startups. Like he wants to do this, you know, Neuralink thing. I, you know, brain implants to control. I forget what it's the, even the premise is. But there, you know, he has this boring company, which I don't really understand what the goal is. But yet, you know, these enterprises, most people can be CEO of one enterprise, and that takes a lot out of them. And from best I can tell, Elon is trying to run four or five separate different things. And, you know, good luck. I mean, this is, this, you know, the publicly traded, running a publicly traded business answerable to shareholders is more than enough on one person's plate. And I think, I think he's overextended. So how he chooses to resolve that, I have no idea. But at the same time, if you start to look more like a car company, then the mystique is gone. And, you know, GM and Ford and Toyotas of the world, they fetch 10 times earnings at peak economic cycle, if you're lucky. And Tesla bulls do not want, uh, don't want that, I don't think. Yeah, look, it's it, the, the whole thing is just, it's, I mean, it's fascinating to watch. And uh, look, we, we are definitely in the middle of an electric car revolution. But, you know, sometimes sometimes the first uh, the first revolutionaries over the trench just get cut down. And maybe that's the fate. We'll have to wait and see. But it's an impressively strong cult that this company's built. Look, Charlie, it's been great fun. We, we've run out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. Just, just for the people out there that aren't following you, A, they all should do, and B, just let them know where, where they can uh, follow you on Twitter and, and how to read more of your stuff. Yeah, okay. We, we are in the Hurt on the Street page in the finance section of the Wall Street Journal. Look for us towards the back. Um, column runs every day. and We've got, you know, 15 contributors around the world, myself included. And you can find me on Twitter at CGrantWSJ. Um, I will read your note, nice or naughty. <laughs> there you go. Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's, it's great to have you with us. Anytime. Thanks, Grant. Yeah, I've, been, I've been looking forward, Alex, to getting Charlie on the show for such a long time. He's, he's, a, he's a very uh, sane voice in a very insane corner of, of Twitter and, uh, and the financial space. I mean, he's, he's a fantastic reporter. He takes the brickbats with uh, remarkable, remarkable calm. But uh, but he, more than anyone, I think, is someone who has reported on this Tesla story brilliantly. Yeah, I agree. And and he's a very clear thinker. He Tesla is a, a complicated story, and he has this ability to. And it's a story, too, where, where the financials get wrapped up in your belief about what the future is going to be, wrapped up in your environmental views. And, and he's kind of able to see all those things at the same time and, and weigh them against each other in terms of what's going to affect the company in, in the next uh, few months. So really a pleasure to hear him talk about this stuff. Yeah, no, it's, that's actually a great point. Now, joining us from the other end of the spectrum is Mark Spiegel. And Mark uh, was superb the last time he was on the podcast. He's a highly outspoken critic of both uh, Elon Musk and Tesla, the company. But he backs it up with the figures and the details. And I, I just I love reading his stuff. I love talking to him. He's, uh, he's an irreverent guy, but uh, there's a real depth and a sharpness to it. So, so let's bring him back on the podcast. Mark, <laughs> welcome back. It's uh, it's great to hear an English accent on this call. <laughs> well, mine's you, you know mine's totally fake, right? <laughs> <laughs> it makes you sound really smart, though. So uh, no, I know, I know. That, that's why I do it. The truth is, I'm from Sheboygan. So it, it's been uh, probably a pretty good few uh, few months for you. You must be feeling feeling pretty good about your Tesla short. Uh, well, it, it was a terrible January. Uh, it was a, a decent February. It was a great March, and it's been a terrible April. <laughs> I shouldn't say terrible, but you know it's funny. Um, this stock is like a vampire. I mean, it's just got an infinite number of lives, and every time you think the silver stake has has gone through its heart, it pops up out of the grave again. But somebody sent me a chart and posted it on Twitter that you know on the way down. Uh, Enron had an amazing number of 20 to 40% rallies. I think at one time it had like a 45% rally. So, you know, nothing goes straight down. I, I think that that this company is, um, you know, coming to the point where it really just breaks down for good. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. 
Yeah, we were just talking to, to Charlie Grant from the Wall Street Journal, and we were talking about that there is, it, it, it's always been sort of a battleground stock, but um, reviews of, of the cars have, have stored, started to turn over, and, and these concerns about the debt are, are really no joke. Um, I, I think I, I know how you're going to answer this, but do you, do you think that this is the final turn lower, not necessarily in terms of the stock, but at least in terms of the news flow? Or, or for you, is it part of a long-term downward spiral that that started, you know, as soon as you started watching the company, if that, if that makes sense? <laughs> well, considering that I started watching the company and took a very, very tiny short position in like uh, late summer of 2013, <laughs> I, I could hardly say that the downward spiral started then. Um, but, you know, the, the interesting thing about this is uh, on pretty much any important metric, I've been fundamentally right about this company all along, and the stock has just, you know, just took off and got bigger and bigger. I mean, that said, you know, it's it's not that different from where it was, you know, three, four years ago, you know. Um, and, I mean, a, a week or so ago or two weeks ago, the stock was – in the two fifties. And that's where it had been four and a half years prior, you know? So, um, now with a lot more shares outstanding. So the market cap has gone up. So look, I mean, my timing on this thing has been horrible and, you know, it's become, it's become a little bit of a crusade for me because I think this company does horrible things. I mean, I think it's putting dangerous products out there, but initially, you know, it was a, it was an investment or a, a short, a short position. And, if I look, if I knew this stock was going to go from, you know, a hundred to to three eighty before it started, on, I would have gotten long. You know, it's not, it's not so. But you know, at this point, I don't think I don't think the previous all time high, which was uh, I guess in the three eighties, I don't think that will ever be taken out. And so I, you know, my position is larger now than it's ever been. I actually made it that way a few months ago when it was in the mid three hundreds. And um, I, you know, I think. I think it's going to meet its destiny. As far as the timing, I don't know. I mean, you know, Tesla Musk can sell a lot of stock at increasingly lower prices on the way down. So, how, in in your view, how do you think this plays out? Do, does he raise you know, raise money at lower and lower and lower and lower prices? Is he able to access the debt markets at higher and higher yields? If you could kind of sketch out what you think is going to happen over the next couple of years, there's no way. Uh, there's no way this guy can access the debt market. I mean, there's just no way. I mean, well, unless, you know, he could he could do a convert issue on incredibly attractive terms, you know, and maybe with a reset on the stock conversion price. But there's no way, like, you know, there's no way non-convertible debt, other than, you know, he probably has some line, some, some room maybe on the secured, you know, working capital lines or whatever, maybe the lease warehouse facility. But as far as just regular kind of a debt deal, as he did, similar to what he did last summer, forget it. I mean, as it is now, you know, at least a third of their of their gross profit is going just to interest on the debt. I mean, it's ridiculous the, the, the financial the balance sheet this company has <laughs> combined with the P and L. So no, it's going to have to be stock. And you know, again, the question is: is the SEC not letting them do it? I mean, look, it's theoretically possible that they just can't get a registration statement through. And, and, and you could have a company, I'm not saying this is going to happen, by the way. I'm just saying, theoretically, you could have a company with a $300 stock, you know, declare bankruptcy. I, I, suppose, I suppose they could do an offshore offering that doesn't have to be registered with the SEC and at a, at a huge discount, and they could probably get something done, you know, even if there's no registration. But, um, you know, it would have to be a big discount because those people would never know for sure if they could resell the stock, you know. So if they could get a registration statement done, as long as the discount were big enough, they could absolutely raise plenty of money on the way down. I mean, you've got a $300 stock here for now anyway, you know, even if it's in the 200s, you know, trading on average, you know, five, five million shares a day. So you're looking at, you know, a billion and a half dollars of daily volume. Any hedge fund you know, including mine, <laughs> would buy that if the discount were fat enough and just look to blow it out the next day. So, I, you know, if they could get a, a registration statement through, they could they could sell stock at increasingly lower prices, you know, on the way to a restructuring at some point. But 
there's, there's the only way this, I don't think there's any way they can avoid restructuring at this point because they have too much debt. You know, there was a, there was a time and I suggested this publicly in an article on seeking alpha and Musk may have read it because he, he commented without naming it not that long after, you know, they could have just drastically sort of shrunk their ambition and tried to be a, a high end niche, high performance, profitable electric car maker. And, you know, maybe look to sell, I don't know, 30, you know, sort of a, something a little bigger than a Ferrari, but similar to that and just have the fastest cars out there. But that wasn't Musk's ambition. That wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't feed his ego. That wouldn't put them in the, in the media. And, and maybe that wouldn't be big enough to keep his, you know, his Gulfstream G650 ER in the air, along with the multiple houses in Bel Air while he solves the global warming problem. So he rejected that. And I think that's going to be the demise of this company. Yeah. So, so the, we talked to Charlie Grant about this too. Is it's, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is whether at, at this point, like let, let, let's say you were running Tesla, could you turn it into a company that makes, you know, Lotus car, these, these, some, a small number of super high end cars and just fire almost everyone and forget about the battery operations. It, it, theoretically. It, could, it, yeah. I think it's too late now because of the debt too late. If they didn't have the debt and if they hadn't taken on all that debt, you know, sure. I don't, I don't remember the numbers I throw out in my article, but you know, it was like, you know, let's say they sold and they'd be bigger than Lotus and, and bigger than Ferrari, but let's say they, but smaller than Porsche. And let's say they sold, I don't know, you know, 30,000 cars a year worldwide at an ASP of $175,000 or something like that, or $150,000 and drastically shrunk the dealership footprint and, you know, didn't try to maintain their superchargers, which will be completely unnecessary soon anyway, because all these other networks are rolling out. So if they moved to a standard format, they could eliminate that. There's a lot he could have done to have a nice, to have a nice little company worth several billion dollars, like legitimately at a legitimate multiple, but it's just way too late now. There's just way too much debt. Now, you know, once they enter eventually chapter 11 and, and, and restructure, you know, maybe that's what happens. Maybe they dress, but at that point, it's almost too late then, you know, they had their window and, you know, they're going to try to go up against Porsche. I mean, Porsche is going to have three versions of the mission E not to mention a bunch of other cars. And their top version is always the equivalent of, you know, the turbo S which costs, you know, in, in a, in a regular conventional car, you know, which is a cost $200,000 and goes 200 miles an hour. And, you know, and does anything the Tesla w- would have done. So it's just going to be hard for them. I think they, ha- I think they had their window. Not only did they fail to capitalize on it, but they made things increasingly worse as time went on. I mean, the company shows no scale at all. The losses get bigger and bigger, and the lies get bigger and bigger, and, and the, the future securities fraud lawsuits against Elon Musk get bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, look, the one thing he'll have accomplished, I guess, I'm not sure how much credit to give to him, is getting all these companies to make electric cars. But, you know, even that, you know, I mean, the, 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 every government in the world just about is forcing companies to make, um, you know, some form of electric car. Now, maybe Musk has sort of pushed them from fuel cells into battery electric cars. And, and you know, I'll give him credit for that if he wants credit. But, you know, in doing so, he, he, he incinerated a lot of investor capital. and. And those cars aren't going to make money for the big guys who make them either. It'll just allow them to sell cars that do make money. So, so Mark, one, one place that you are really active is Twitter. And it, it's it's so much fun to, to read your tweets because you're all over this stuff. And you're such a lightning rod for criticism. Now, the last time we had you on the podcast, you laid out the bear case beautifully. And it took us a couple of months to find... Uh, someone to come on and, and put up the bull case. And it's not to say we didn't have people offering, but the people who were offering just when you, when you drilled down into their long thesis at the bottom of all of them was the same thing, which is I trust Elon. You've got to believe in Elon. He's going to pull this thing off. And I didn't want to put these guys on because a, I didn't want them getting shredded by the audience and B, I didn't want it. I didn't want to make it look as though we were stacking the deck by putting a weak argument up there. But you, you, know, you get into this stuff with people, and 
the extraordinary thing is some of these people who are just blind believers in the Tesla story are experienced investors. I mean, you go backwards and forwards with uh, Ross Gerber, for example, who is, you know, he's, he's an experienced investor. What, what do you think it is that people are missing about this whole thing? Well, actually, Ross Gerber uh, blocked me, I don't know, a couple <laughs> years ago. So, and, and, you know, in fairness, I've muted a lot of these guys on the other side because they never have anything new to say. Um, but, you know, I would say the ultimate, I, I, and this is not somebody with whom I've engaged on Twitter, and this is somebody who, you know, I've been told informally would not engage with me in a public forum. And if this is wrong, let's do it. I mean, the ultimate experienced investor is, is Ron Barron on this thing, you know? Right. I mean, yes, there, there are PMs, at, obviously, at Bailey Gifford and, um, and T. Rowe and Fidelity who own this, but I don't know how old those guys are. I mean, you know, the Bailey Gifford guy, you listen to him, and he sounds like a guy who didn't live through 99 to 2000. I don't know, maybe he did, but Ron Barron's been around a long time, and um, he's just got, like, this crush on Elon Musk, and he apparently is impervious to... The facts and data, as all these guys are. Now, I heard a chunk of of the show you did with the the Tesla bull, and the problem with what he was saying was, you know, he was just he had all these absurdly optimistic numbers, and apparently, you know, was pretending that there wasn't this massive competition rolling out. I mean, I sat in that new Jaguar electric car last week at the New York Auto Show. I mean, the inside of that thing, it, it makes a Tesla look like a, you know, a Travant. I mean, and that's only the, that's only the Jag. I mean, you know, we've talked about this before, but you've got the Audi and the Mercedes and the Porsche all rolling out probably within the next 12 months. I mean, how can anybody in his right mind? And, and by the way, you know, we saw the latest report for Q1 for the deliveries, you know, um, S combined Model S and X sales were already down a double digit percentage both sequentially and year over year. And that's even before the luxury stuff rolls out. And those are the only cars that, that really have any kind of gross margin for Tesla. They don't have any EBIT margin, but I mean, the model three has a negative gross margin for God's sake. So, you know, I mean, these people, they have, there's nothing they can engage with other than absurd assumptions, which is what your bullish guest had. So it's, it's interesting because you talk I've heard you talk about this a lot, and, and you make a really strong point that people seem to be there's a there's a cult of of personality, perhaps um, there there's certainly a lot of enthusiasm around the stock that doesn't have to do with financial reports uh, or, or numbers of any kind, and yet it, it all and, and we talked earlier about how the the company just seems to bounce back from everything partially because of this huge fan base and, and the incredible loyalty of, of their, some of their customers and their stockholders. Thinking back to when you started, you know, shorting the stock, was that something you, you neglected? It, it seems like that's, that's the kind of company I, I wouldn't want to short unless it, it was really getting grim because this is a company where it, you can be right about everything. And yet if you're wrong about sentiment, you're, you're going to have a hard time making money on it. Yeah, I, I obviously I missed. I mean, I totally missed that. Uh, but what? But what I missed was that experienced investors would 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 have that would, would look at it that way, rather than sort of being a discounting mechanism for all the competition that would be coming out, as well as the fact that Tesla would never sell anywhere near as many of these cars as as it you know as these guys were hoping they would sell, and Tesla claimed it would sell. I. I, I <laughs> I don't know how to sound. All right. I'm going to say this. I don't mean to say this sounding uh, like a jerk because, you know, I, I, I'm no friggin' genius myself, but I believe me, I'm not. But I way overestimated the intelligence of the uh, of the Tesla shareholder base. I just thought these are institutional investors. They can't be that stupid. But yet in the ensuing years, when I've seen them interviewed and heard them, I've said, you know what? They really are that stupid, or at least they're that stupid about about this company. You know, love has love has made them blind to to facts. So that was my mistake. But you know what? I'm always early on everything. I you know I buy companies a little bit too early, and then I sell them deliberately 
too early. I mean, I don't try to milk the, that last crazy spike out of them. And when they do, you know, on, on the long side and on the short side too, I mean, I just tend to be, I, I think value investors in general tend to be too early and, and I plead guilty. I, I wish I had timed it better. As I said at the beginning of the conversation, if I knew this was going to go from a hundred to 380 before it began the descent, I would have been long. I, I would have sold it at, you know, 379 <laughs> sure, sure. It just doesn't work that way. Sure. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, well, good luck. And uh, thanks so much for joining us again on Adventures in Finance, Mark. Thank you. It's always fun. And, and this was terrific. Take care. Thank you. All right. Well, you know, this Tesla story, the, the longer it goes on, the more fascinating it gets. We, we are a long way from the end of it. There are going to be plenty more twists and turns. And again, I'll, I'll put this call out there. Any raging tesla bulls that want to come on and uh, and talk about why all the stuff that's been going on in the last couple of months is nonsense we would love to hear from you so please send us an email podcast at realvision.com and we'll invite you on and turn the microphone over you to hear the other side but that sadly concludes another episode of adventures in finance before we go a quick legal disclaimer for you you all know it by now but let's hear it one more time anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice these are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always trade responsibly. We'll be back next week, but uh, between now and then, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you've heard on Adventures in Finance, and of course, Tesla Bulls, this is especially for you, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Yes, please leave those reviews. Leave those reviews. Leave those reviews. It makes James very, very happy reading them. I like reading the reviews. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and, of course, podcast episodes, please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're also hanging around Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. Yeah, hanging around. That's, that sounds very shady, but I promise you it's not. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. You can follow me at Aces Rose. And you can follow me at AIF James. That's it from us, folks. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you all next week. listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com